in every single case where the court has balanced the harms of some particular speech against the benefits of restricting it, it's been a civil case. In cases where there are criminal consequences for speech, the court has categorically rejected that kind of balancing test in the context of criminal laws. And the reason is, in the context of criminal laws, when those laws are overbroad, they cause chill and they cause people to cease from fully protected behavior and self-censor because they're worried about the broad boot of the criminal justice system coming down on them. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams in Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, the online practice management for lawyers, which you can find more about at www.goclio.com. Well, Bob, our last episode, we covered the societal harms and legislative solutions associated with revenge porn with victim advocate Dr. Holly Jacobs and Professor Marianne Franks from the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. For those unfamiliar with this issue, revenge porn is a practice where individuals are posting intimate media of their former significant others online without their consent for the public to see. Despite the motivations behind recent legislative activity, there have been certain objections to the proposed bills and past laws. So today we wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the uh, counter to what we talked about in our last show. And to help us do that, we're going to have two guests on today, and we're going to introduce them in just a moment. Uh, Later in this show, we're going to bring back Professor Marianne Franks, who was one of our guests last week, to uh, have uh, counter to the counter, I guess. So let me start today by introducing Lee Rowland. Lee is a staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Prior to joining the ACLU, she was voting rights counsel with the Brennan Center for Justice, where she successfully represented the League of Women Voters of Florida and others in constitutional challenges to Florida's 2011 election law. Uh, Lee previously ran the Reno office of the ACLU of Nevada, where she regularly argued before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Nevada Supreme Court. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Lee Rowland. Thank you so much for having me. And Bob, in addition, we have joining us Mr. Mark Randazza, who's a First Amendment lawyer for the Randazza Legal Group located in Las Vegas, Nevada, graduate of Georgetown University Law Center. He found his passion for the First Amendment while attending UMass at Amherst in the journalism program. Randazza has offices in five states and represents both adult entertainment companies and private individuals. He's a regular contributor to news sources such as CNN and Fox News and is a frequent commentator on legal issues to the international media. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mr. Randazza. Thanks. And another small world item there, because I'm. Uh, we were talking about small world items before the show started, but I'm a UMass Amherst journalism graduate as well. That explains a lot. <laughs> that explains a lot, doesn't it? Mark Randazzo, let's start with you. And you've been a, a long-time uh, advocate of the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights. You represent clients in the adult entertainment industry, but you've kind of established for yourself some rules when it comes to uh, online pornography. 
tell us about that. What are your rules for online pornography? Uh, where do you draw the line? And uh, how does this relate to the First Amendment? As you can imagine, I've seen it all. And in defending the adult entertainment industry, I've definitely seen some things that have made me want to throw up in my trash can that I've actually thrown up in my trash can from viewing. And people have always asked me, you know, is there a line anywhere? And yeah, the line is pretty bright to me. Rule number one, the content should be of adults. Rule number two, the content should be of consenting adults. Anything short of that, I think that the creator of that content needs to be punished. Pretty easy rules. I mean, if, if you can't live with those two rules, I think you have a problem. Lee, the ACLU has expressed concerns with the anti-revenge porn legislation. In particular, your organizations mentioned the First Amendment, privacy, over-criminalization. Do you think revenge porn is a form of protected speech? And what are the largest areas of concern regarding the anti-revenge porn legislation? Well, your lead-up was certainly true, but the question itself is truly a loaded one, whether revenge porn is protected speech, right? So I'm going to start by, uh, you know, ducking already the actual question you put to me, but don't worry, I'll get there. You know, showing a photograph you legally possess is fully protected speech, uh, just bottom line. I, I don't think there's really anybody with a straight face who can argue with that. And I believe that's true, even if you lack the explicit consent of the person who may be pictured in that photograph, right? So I could go online right now and share a photograph of a stranger on my Facebook page, and I would argue that's fully protected by the First Amendment. Further, I believe all of that remains true if the person happens to be nude or arguably engaged in a sex act. I could, you know, do that right now by going online and sharing a photograph of uh, Anthony Weiner in flagrante delicto, or to use maybe an easier example, somebody who's not a public figure, go online and Google some amateur porn, decide I like some and display that on my blog. I may not know from the context of that picture the circumstances under which that was taken or shared, uh, and I think my ability to share that nudity is fully protected by the First Amendment. So that gets us maybe half of the way into your question. As to the question of whether revenge porn is protected speech, you know, my concern with it is that revenge porn is a crazily loaded phrase, right? It immediately sparks an emotional reaction that I think tends to prevent critical thinking, what Orwell called uh, ready-made phrases, right? That's one of them. You can imagine that any state legislature would, and is, by the way, fall all over themselves to strike a blow against revenge porn. But, you know, this is a legal podcast. We're lawyers. And I think the topic deserves more, which is a discussion of the details, even though that's the, <laughs> that is the typical lawyer's safe response, I understand. But that's the truth. In pretty much every state where revenge porn bills have been introduced, the ACLU has opposed. The state, usually the state affiliate, as you mentioned in your question, has opposed this legislation at least initially. And I tend to act a bit as a clearinghouse for the bills to help advise the affiliates. I do my best to evaluate them as principally as possible and looking at the details. And what that comes down to, from my point of view, is looking at whether these bills target speech itself by presuming that the posting of non-consensual nudity is a crime or inherently causes harm. Those are bills I think have no chance in hell of surviving First Amendment scrutiny. They're clearly content-based, and they're not really narrowly tailored to meet any form of scrutiny. And unfortunately, every bill has started out pretty much in that form. It basically makes it illegal to share a photograph of someone who is either nude or engaged in some sex act without explicitly seeking their consent. I see that as a broad-scale ban on nudity, on pornography, 
I think our Supreme Court, even in this incarnation, has said enough times that that's protected that we don't really need to grapple with that. But I think the open question, and I don't think it's a simple question, is whether or not these bills could be narrowed enough in their language such that they actually target the malicious invader of privacy, right? So this guy that we think of when we hear that loaded phrase, revenge porn. I think it might be theoretically possible, but I will tell you I haven't seen a bill that comes close. And I have extreme concerns about even attempting to grapple with that in the context of the criminal law, because I think it requires defining, frankly, human dysfunction. A revenge porn is really all about a violation of trust between two, hopefully, adults. And the law, you know, the criminal law is a super blunt instrument. So using that to decide the kind of circumstances of a communication as to whether or not the proper consent was reached, particularly in the many kinds of intimate relationships that humans are capable of, whether it's from a quick Snapchat or a 10-year marriage, that's something I think the criminal law doesn't do well. So I start out with a grave skepticism that there is a possible revenge porn law that can be passed that doesn't simply duplicate existing criminal law. Mark Randazza, you have represented victims of revenge porn. You recently won a uh, $385,000 judgment for one of your clients. I think that might have been a, a default judgment who was a victim of revenge porn. My understanding, Mark, is that you're opposed to legislation, particularly criminal legislation in these cases. Uh, what is your position on legislating here? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't concur more with Lee's statements about this as a, as a criminal matter. I couldn't even begin to say it as well as she did. So let, let me just put a strongly concur under that. But I think we've got, and I think she's also right, though, if we go back to the definition of this as revenge porn. I mean, I tried early on to call this involuntary porn because I think that's more accurate. But by calling it revenge porn, we forget about a whole segment of people that are involved in this. You know, it's not just jilted ex-lovers doing this. This happens because people hack into someone else's email. It happens because someone brings their computer to Best Buy or, or wherever to get it worked on, and someone finds nude photos on there and decides to do something with them. Someone loses their phone at a nightclub, and they've got a bunch of nude selfies on there. This picture of the revenge pornographer as being just this, uh, you know, angry ex-boyfriend is really not accurate. So I think that compounds the constitutional infirmities in using the criminal law to do something about this. And Lee's absolutely right. If you have possession of this photograph and you legally have a right to have it, this would criminalize, the bills that I've seen would criminalize someone having a photograph of somebody that they are in an in a intimate relationship with and just showing it to somebody else and saying, hey, isn't, uh, isn't she hot? But what is a victim to do, Mark? In short of legislation, when a victim comes to you, when somebody's been a victim of revenge porn, uh, what do you tell them? Well, I think there are existing civil remedies. I think they're inadequate. And I do support legislation against this, but... I do not want this blunt instrument of the criminal law being used to do anything about it because, frankly, everything that Lee articulated, but also I think it's just not going to do any good. What it's going to do is set the cause back because these laws are going to be ruled unconstitutional, or let's just presume this theoretical constitutional law that I haven't seen either uh, is passed. Remember the practical element here. You've got to get law enforcement to care. Now, 
If you find a place where there's a couple of underage kids drinking, I'm sure we'll have a raid with shotguns drawn. You know, homeless guy camping out in a park, let's bring out the riot police. But I've represented underage kids that have wound up on these websites. Clear child pornography. That is absolutely positively illegal to distribute. And I speak with people in law enforcement and they say, you know, it's just not a priority. And what am I supposed to do when the victim is some 40-year-old guy? They're just going to laugh at it. So you'll get maybe one or two prosecutions a year. And the rest of the time, do you think the person who stole a computer is really going to be worried if they also have a potential revenge porn crime sitting on their record? Most of these people are not going to care. They're going to do it in a way that they won't get caught anyway. And even if we come back to this hypothetical jilted ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, you know, that segment of people publishing these photographs, just think as a human being about what they're doing. You know, they're lashing out because there's an emotional issue going on. I'm not saying it's right, but if you have somebody who has that lapse in judgment in a very emotional situation and they hit send from that moment forward, there's nothing they can do to bring it back. And that person belongs in prison. I mean, don't we have enough people in prison for nonviolent crimes? Civil remedies, I think, are the way to go. I have shut down or been involved in shutting down. I'm not going to take full credit for all of them, but I've been involved in shutting down three of these websites already. And that's where you really need to take aim. It's not the jerk who publishes it. It's not the jerk who steals the photograph. You've got to follow the money. Now, these websites, all of them have been very poorly designed, but I mean, I'll give you a blueprint for how you run one of these and get away with it from, you know, from start to finish. Make it truly user-generated content that has an automated uploading process, and then you're protected by 47 U.S.C. Section 230 as a service provider. What is the solution here? What's the solution, Lee? I mean, obviously there's a problem and we need to come to a resolution. So if it's not legislation and not criminalization, how do we solve it? Well, I think Mark touched on it a little bit by saying, first of all, where civil remedies don't exist in the states to grapple with this. You know, I think as a general matter, the ACLU is not going to oppose them on principle, although, of course, we'll look at the details like anything else. And that's because we're an organization that, you know, we're not simply a First Amendment organization. We do care about privacy. We think that privacy is a fundamental right. And I don't want to oversimplify the issue of revenge porn. I haven't seen a statute that passes constitutional muster. I'm not interested in the creation of a new criminal statute to address this. But that doesn't mean that there aren't real underlying harms. And Mark's clients are among those who have experienced them. Um, You know, even the Supreme Court has recognized that the nature of technology accumulates in a way that creates an invasion of privacy that is different in degree, if not kind, right? They said that in the Jones GPS case. And so I think we need to be realistic about the fact that someone whose nude body is all over the web, that they can't escape the consequences of that very easily. You know, employers are going to find that on the web. They could lose jobs, especially people who are in education and other kind of sensitive fields that may be more nudity averse. So Look, there should be remedies for people who are maliciously attacked by people with non-consensual visions of their nude bodies on the web. Now, again, as we've already discussed, the civil law 
was kind of built to grapple with the many flavors of human dysfunction. It takes into account facts and circumstances, the details of that relationship. The civil law has kind of a long history of weighing those kind of interpersonal details and figuring out whether or not liability attaches. So as a general matter, there are existing civil remedies for victims of revenge porn in states that, for whatever reason, don't have statutes that grapple with them. As a general matter, we're probably not going to oppose the creation of civil remedies as long as they are drafted narrowly enough not to simply criminalize nudity. I mean, sorry, to make nudity unlawful in the civil context. But there are other issues I think we have to grapple with, and that is the issue of gender, and that is the issue of this as a civil rights issue. While I don't generally support the civil rights approach that's been proposed by Professor Franks and Professor Daniel Citron, among others, because I think it creates more problems than it solves. I don't think we can stick our heads in the sand and pretend this isn't a gender issue. And I do believe that one thing we need to insist upon is increased enforcement and the taking seriously of complaints by police departments, by civil lawyers, we need to provide more resources to access the remedies that exist. And for example, even outside of the civil context, when we hear these revenge porn horror stories, there are a number of them that fall into existing criminal laws that don't necessarily offend the First Amendment, sadly, including threats and hacking, ID theft, criminal stalking, where there's kind of repeat conduct. It may fall into existing harassment laws and state civil invasion of privacy laws. Almost every horror, I think every horror story I have personally heard about revenge porn should and does fit into the existing legal structure, but what we lack are police departments that take these complaints seriously, where they rise to the level of criminal behavior. Number one, because it's not made a priority. Number two, because they lack the technical expertise, right, to go sue an ISP for an anonymous user's name when there's a criminal threat of rape, for example, that's been made. And number two, I think we haven't done a good job in the legal culture of getting more attorneys to take these cases. Obviously, Mark is one of them, but there's a reason that Mark has been an outstanding voice on this issue, and that's because there aren't a ton of attorneys who will take these cases because they don't perceive them as clear violations or because they don't believe the fiscal remedies are going to be enough to sweeten the pot for them to take the case. So I think there are many things we can do to step up enforcement, to emphasize this as a gender and civil rights issue without pursuing criminal laws that, in my view, really damage First Amendment rights. And by the way, I'm an unabashed feminist, and I think that damaging the First Amendment harms us all. You know, I don't think that's just a feminist issue or, a, you know, you don't have to be on one side or the other of any particular gender debate or civil rights debate to believe that lessening the protections of the First Amendment harms all of us and particularly marginalized populations. So there are things we can do. We need to take a short break right now, and I want to follow up on a few of the points you just made, Lee, uh, but we will be back after the break. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. 
We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Ms. Lee Rowland from ACLU and Mr. Mark Randaza of the Randaza Legal Group. In addition, as we will have returning to our program, Professor Marianne Franks. She's the Vice President of Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Miami School of Law. She holds a JD from Harvard Law School, and prior to her teaching career, Marianne obtained both her Master's and a PhD in Modern Languages and Literature as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. As part of her continuing efforts with the Cyber Legal Rights Initiative, she works with state legislators to draft legislation against non-consensual pornography. Welcome, Professor Franks. Thank you. Well, Professor Franks, we had you on last week, and and you've been listening, I think, to the conversation today, and I wanted to give you, uh, to start just by giving you an opportunity to share your thoughts on uh, what you've heard so far today. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been very enlightening to hear some of the criticisms and, and issues being raised, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to discuss them. I want to first address the question, I think it's maybe the most important question in some ways, of really talking about the harm that's caused to victims. And I'm very glad that Mr. Randaza has pointed out that the people who are actually trying to do something about so-called revenge porn are not the people who really like that term very much, because that term is very misleading. It's not just about the angry ex. It is sometimes someone who's hacked into someone's phone. It's somebody who has hijacked someone's webcam. It's, there are all kinds of instances, and this is why I've pretty much insisted on the term non-consensual pornography, that we need to think about the kinds of harms that actually causes, and we need to think about why it is that victims, and I do think it's, it's important to consider victims' experiences above all here, that we have to figure out what they're experiencing, whether or not they think there's adequate laws, whether or not they have found that there are laws that actually adequately protect them. And of course, that doesn't resolve the issue, but it's certainly an important uh, part of the debate to have out there. And I think the thing that needs to really be emphasized is that we have a historical tendency in the society to trivialize the kinds of harms that are primarily directed at women and have some relationship to sex. And I think when we think about that, we both can understand why it is that we're not paying as much attention to the harm that's caused by this as we should. And it's also... It seems to me, if I could just interrupt, it seems to me that I'm hearing everybody on this call certainly agree that this is a a very serious problem and that there needs to be legal remedies of some sort uh, available to it. And it seems that, that the nub of the issue really seems to be whether criminal legislation is too extreme in a response to this issue, uh, if it's going to, in fact, criminalize activity that shouldn't be criminalized, and, and if a criminal statute could withstand constitutional scrutiny under the First Amendment. I mean, that seems to be the nub of the disagreement here, as I'm hearing it. What well, are, I think the things are related. I do think the things are related, and I'll explain why. First of all, there really isn't any First Amendment reason to oppose criminal laws versus civil. This is the bind I think many objectors to the criminal statutes find themselves in. If you think that civil remedies are effective in regulating revenge porn, if you think that it stops people in some ways or it actually punishes them, then that means that you don't believe that, at least in some cases, that non-consensual pornography is protected by the First Amendment because the Supreme Court doesn't say, well, you know, criminals out, but civil's okay. They've actually held the opposite. If something is protected speech, you can't use civil remedies against it either, which is not to say that, of course, you can't compare a civil remedy and talk about its specificity versus a criminal statute that you might find a little worrisome. There are ways to make 
make that comparison. But as a objective matter of categorical uh, distinctions, you can't say, well, civil is okay, but criminal is not, not from a First Amendment perspective. Now, the objection that can be made is we don't like criminalizing this behavior because we don't want people to go to jail. That seems to be Mr. Rondaz's point. And this is where I think you have to understand something about the harm. I don't take it as a given that we would say we don't want to throw these people in jail. The notion of violating someone's sexual consent and autonomy in the way that non-consensual porn does, I think, is indicative of the kinds of things we should find so harmful as a society, not merely as individuals, because that's really what civil remedies are appropriate for. It's for individual harms, some way that we can try to make them whole, as opposed to social deterrence, the idea that our society condemns this because it's such a serious harm and it so violates our commitments to equality, to justice, to fairness, all these things that we might want to care about. That's why criminalization actually makes sense. And it's also an indication of why we haven't seen deterrence now. We've seen a a kind of explosion in these sites. We've seen victims coming forward and saying, this is happening to me. I never thought it would. If civil remedies were adequate, if we had everything we need and the status quo to handle this issue, we wouldn't be seeing this. So yes, part of it is under enforcement, part of it is people who don't understand the laws, but another part is we haven't been willing to make the commitment to say this is at least as harmful as hundreds of things that we criminalize. We criminalize forms of theft, we criminalize forms of identity theft, taking someone's credit card, and we're not willing to say yet, but we think that it would be maybe something we should be able to criminalize to take someone's sexual autonomy and possibly ruin their entire lives, subject them to rape threats and sexual propositions and loss of employment and loss of education. These are all things we're saying, well, that can be handled by a lawsuit. And that just really is a fundamental judgment about the harm. Well, let's give Lee and Mark a, a chance to get back in on, on this discussion at this point. Mark? First, I think it's completely false to say that you can't have civil remedies that there's no distinction when you have a civil remedy or a criminal remedy. I mean, we have, we have torts for invasion of privacy. We have torts for many different areas of expressive conduct. And we decide on a case-by-case basis whether somebody has given up their First Amendment rights in that situation. Here, what we're talking about doing is something we have done very, very sparingly, and that is creating a new category of criminal expression. The last time we did that was for child pornography. And you know, quite honestly, if nobody on this call likes child pornography, uh, not very many people would defend it. But now the mere possession of an image can wind up putting somebody in jail for longer than if they actually rape a child. Uh, so no, it can't. Not for, not for any statute that I've actually written. That is not true. That mere possession does not get you that. That is not part of any statute that I've had any hand in legislating. Well, that's, I'm not talking about, you know, and I'm not talking about this law. I'm talking about when we look at slicing off a piece of the First Amendment because somebody's ox is being We're not looking at that. We criminalize true threats. We criminalize obscenity, which, uh, you know, I have a problem with. But... We're all talking about how do the victims feel. I actually represent the victims. They are my clients. I've helped them. None of them would have been helped by throwing somebody in jail. The problem is when I get these phone calls from people saying, can you help me? They're not asking me, can you help me by wreaking vengeance upon the person who did it? They're asking for these images to go away and to become private again. The problem we have, our biggest problem, if we really want to help these people, is not by putting seven or eight teenage boys in jail because they were stupid for a moment. What we need to do is remove Section 230 protection or legislate around it. People have, outside of the Ninth Circuit, 
right of publicity is an intellectual property right that is not within Section 230's protections. We can modify the right of publicity statutes in all of the states outside the Ninth Circuit and thus make it that ISPs, Section 230 protected websites, have some fear. None of these companies got shut down because they were concerned about going to jail. None of these people published these things saying, oh, well, I'm just going to be a judgment-proof defendant, so I don't care. We're really talking about taking a meat slicer to a, granted, a very narrow sliver of First Amendment rights. But every time you do that, you have less of the sausage left. And this is just a really poor idea. Every single time somebody has a problem with something that makes them feel bad, and we're going to give up expressive rights and put someone in jail. You know, we don't have, for example, people don't go to jail for defamation. Defamation is not a criminal law. It's a civil law. You know, and it's a similar tort. You look at somebody who has been wronged by expressive activity, and then you ask, how much was that harm? Who is responsible? And how do we take care of that on an individualized basis? Look, I'm the only one on this call that has the authority to say, I know how these victims feel because I represent them as an attorney. Could I respond now? I'm the only one who's actually helped any of them except sitting there and saying, you go, girl. No, I'm actually doing something for these people. And I'm not going to sit here and listen as somebody says that. I mean, I respect what, you do, what you're doing, and, I, and I, I cheer you on for trying to help these people. But for God's sake, you're going to set your own cause back a decade with these criminal statutes, and you are going to wind up seeing these laws reversed every single time they're enforced. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Professor Franks. Go ahead. Thank you. That was kind of a lot. Um, I do find it very odd that anyone would ever lay claim to representing victims as a class. I think that would do a disservice to the number of victims that are out there with a diversity of experiences, some of whom are desperately seeking criminalization because they recognize that that is the only way to adequately even reflect the harm that they have been suffering. So I'm not, I'm certainly never going to take away from anybody what they've been able to do for individual victims, but I also would never claim to speak for all victims, nor do I think that the kinds of things that maybe I don't like as much about what victims might want should just be not part of the debate because I don't, it doesn't serve my purposes. We have, we are an advocacy-based organization. I am in this because I was asked by a victim to help her change the laws. This is not something that I came up with. This is something that victims have asked for. So I think it's important to respect that. And we can't just sort of throw them out there sometimes and take them back other times. We either respect what they're saying, even when they're saying something different from what we like. Now, that being said, there are plenty of things. I mean, first of all, the First Amendment is not decided. We don't make decisions based on whether something is criminal versus civil. That's not what the Supreme Court does. Now, if you want to compare individual statutes, you certainly can talk about the various ways that something is either more vulnerable to constitutional analysis or less vulnerable. But criminal versus civil does not work as a category because the court doesn't see it that way. And there are plenty of cases where we have decided that the harms that something causes, and this goes back to my point about where the suggestion was we're all clear on what the harm is. I think Mr. Rondaza has just indicated he doesn't really understand the harm if he thinks this is about hurt feelings, which is basically what he implied it was. And it is not, in fact, a matter of hurt feelings. We criminalize disclosures made against HIPAA. That's actually something people can go to jail for because of private health information. We respect the fact that that information getting out actually causes very serious harm. We punish criminal impersonation. We punish identity theft. There are plenty of cases where we actually look at something, we talk about the harm that's committed, and we recognize that when it's not something just aimed at women and when it's not just something that might be related to sex, we're much more 
accommodating of the fact that maybe those interests are actually important. And we very often will say, well, because they're that important and because deterrence is the goal, we need to talk about what we can do to try to make sure that we deter this kind of behavior because none of us should want to be in this business of having to say, put somebody in jail or bring this lawsuit because we don't want it to happen anymore. The question is, how do you get to that world? And my feeling is, you can get to it to a lot of ways. I want technology companies to be coming up with great ideas. I want any creative civil remedies that people can come up with. Mr. Rondaza comes up with interesting ideas about right of publicity. That's great. If copyright helps people in some cases, that's great. But the overwhelming message still needs to be that as a society, we finally recognize that sexual consent and sexual privacy are important matters and that we're not simply going to say, oh, we're worried about the teenager going to prison for a mistake. Well, we could say that about rape. We could say that about any number of things. But if we as a society actually recognize the kind of devastating and in many cases irreversible harm that this causes, there really doesn't seem to be any argument for saying, well, we can't punish it too severely. We'll just punish it a little bit. We either decide that this is serious and it's having serious and devastating consequences or we don't. And as a First Amendment matter, criminal versus civil doesn't get you anything. It's only a question of trying to figure out how serious do we think it is. Let's let Lee roll it in. We're running very short on time, and I want to make sure we got a chance to hear from Lee again before we uh, have to wrap up. Okay, great. As far as civil versus criminal, it's just, again, while I respect Professor Franks and she's entitled to her view, I see the Supreme Court's jurisprudence dramatically differently than she does. In every single case where the court has balanced the harms of some particular speech against the benefit of restricting it, it's been a civil case, full stop. In cases where there are criminal consequences for speech, RAV, for example, more recently and notoriously the U.S. v. Stevens case, the court has categorically rejected that kind of balancing test in the context of criminal laws, and they're absolutely right to do so. And the reason is, in the context of criminal laws, we have a serious problem that when those laws are overbroad, they cause chill. And they cause people to cease from fully protected behavior and self-censor because they're worried about the broad boot of the criminal justice system coming down on them, okay? And when we're talking about something that is widespread behavior, normal behavior to enjoy and to share nudity that is fully protected by the First Amendment, to create a chill on that behavior is a First Amendment harm. And I have seen not a single case from this Supreme Court, certainly not this particular grouping of this Supreme Court, that has indicated that a law like this would be received as anything other than a content-based criminal restriction on speech that is going to have to meet the absolute highest point of strict scrutiny. Now, I think there's a principled way in which advocates for these laws could argue it meets strict scrutiny, but that's only true only true if these laws are focused in on the truly malicious invaders of privacy and they don't simply sweep into their reach someone who gets a selfie from someone they barely know on their phone with a comment underneath that says, XOX, I have a crush on you for your eyes only, who opens up his phone, says, what the heck, turns to his friend and says, look at this picture I just got. This chick is crazy. That situation qualifies as criminal revenge porn and as a felony in virtually every single state law that's been introduced. And I don't think that's what we should be using the criminal law for. When we hear horror stories about the kind of harms that victims experience, the law at a very minimum should match those by including safeguards to ensure that there is malicious intent, that that person has an expectation of privacy, that actual harm is done, and that we're focusing on the conduct, not the speech. And unfortunately, the laws that, as a general matter, have been proposed, including the model law that's proposed by the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, I don't think comes really close to meeting that standard. 
Lee, one thing I think you should keep in mind, you know, I agree with everything you said, but if you do narrow it enough that it fits constitutional muster, it winds up being completely useless. That's the other problem. If you scale it back enough that it could be that the definitions are precise enough, I think you wind up with something that you could never, ever enforce. Uh, The Utah bill that just got signed, I think, is a great example. It has all of these knowingly causing harm. So if, as long as somebody says, I, I didn't know that she would mind, or, or he, you know, I, I do take a little bit of issue with this being talked about as a, nobody takes it seriously because it's only happening to women. Well, I mean, take a look at the revenge porn sites that are still there. Some of them are, there was one that was run out of Colorado that was primarily men. The one that's online right now has, I'd say about 40%. There's an awful lot of that as well, and I think if we look at this as a, just a gender issue, I think we're, we're losing half of our fans uh, that, that might be in favor of doing something about this. But the other part that the Utah law does wrong is it makes all of these exemptions for anyone who is merely a conduit. So there is nothing you can do except punish somebody after the fact and Great. If there are revenge porn victims who, or involuntary porn victims who are out there who, it's their particular desire that someone should go to prison for this, well, I mean, I have civil, civil clients every day who wish that there was a criminal remedy. You know, if a guy comes into my office and says, my ex-girlfriend lied to me that a kid was mine, uh, you know, that's a horrible thing to do to somebody, and why can't she go to jail for that? It's like, well, because we don't put people in jail for that. Hey, I'm sorry to say that we are just about out of time, and we do want to give each of you an opportunity for a very, very brief (laughs) closing thought, because we've gone way over our time here today. And also, as we always do, we invite you to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you uh, uh, if you'd like to do that. So, Lee, let's start with you, and let's get your uh, your closing thoughts and, and let our listeners know how they can follow up with you. Sure. Well, one thing we've been talking around but not directly said is revenge porn is a fascinating issue because unlike something like a peeping Tom law, right, where the invasion of privacy is actually invading someone's space, here the invasion of privacy that occurs is speech itself, right? It is the posting of a photograph. And in deciding whether or not to make that unlawful speech, we have to go through, I think, a lot of really tough questions about what circumstances are involved, whether that person shared nudity innocently, whether they shared nudity snarkily, or whether they did it maliciously with an intent to create a victim. And at the end of the day, you know, what I said before about the criminal being a blunt instrument for regulating human dysfunction, I think for me is the most important variable in this. I haven't seen language that distinguishes between the kind of human relationships under the criminal law and to send someone to jail because they basically receive and share nudity from a stranger uh, is not what I think the massive way to the criminal justice system should be reserved for, full stop. And I think we run up against the First Amendment if and when we do that. And because the speech and privacy interests are so entwined, it mandates that we all be extremely mindful and vigilant about the constitutional concerns here, about the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, and frankly, about common sense and and what we want to use the criminal justice for. Thanks a lot. And what's the best way for our our listeners? to follow up with you. I have a website on the ACLU's national website where my blogs are posted and my contact info, my email is lroland at aclu.org. Thanks a lot. And Mark Randazza, your closing thoughts? I can't say anything better than Lee said it. Okay. Concur. <laughs> All right. How do we find you? Google me. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. And Marianne, let's wrap up with you. 
Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would just want to say that that's absolutely true. One of the points that was made about how this is not just something that affects women, but that if we ignore the gendered aspects of this, I think we do lose out on an understanding of how this works. And I think it's been at work in this conversation that, again, we do criminalize certain forms of invasions of privacy, including things like sensitive health information, identity theft. If those things are permissible and they are matters of criminal law, then I think we have to ask the question, why are we assuming that because it's about nudity, somehow we have less privacy, we have less concern over what would happen if somebody discloses information that they might have obtained lawfully, but then are using in a terrible way. And I think that that's really what we have to focus on. And I think it is a mischaracterization to say that at least the statutes that I have personally worked on don't account for the kinds of caricatures like, oh, a stranger sends you this. If you have exceptions, as I have included, for reasonable expectations of privacy, for making sure that you were aware or you should have been aware about the non-consent, for whether or not it was made for a public purpose, whether or not you were reporting unlawful conduct, it's not the case that you can simply apply this to everybody who ever gets a naked picture. That's an exaggeration and a mischaracterization. So as much as I respect all the points that have been made about how careful one has to tread here, we also have to think, to, to uh, Ms. Rowland's excellent point about how the First Amendment is for everybody, when women especially, because right now those are the main targets, but yes, everybody, when you have to look over your shoulder or worry about whether or not a webcam is recording you, about whether or not an intimate moment is going to turn into the worst day of your life and might mean that you lose your job, get stalked, be, uh, have to move out of your state, then that's chilling a lot of speech. That's chilling a lot of expressive activity. That is something we have to seriously ask ourselves, what are we really accomplishing by using the First Amendment only as a way for people who want to engage maybe in harmful behaviors and not care anything about the fact that letting people engage in these types of behaviors has a serious chilling effect on their autonomy, their sexual autonomy and their freedoms. And that's what I would just want people to consider and to think about. Marianne, how would our listeners reach out to you? Oh, yes. So my Twitter handle is MA underscore Frank. So you can always tweet at me. And I am at the cybersilverrights.org is the organization where you can see a lot of the information in the model statutes. You can also always email me at mafranks at law.miami.edu. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot to all of you for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. And Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.